I define, uh, ooh, okay. Huh. I guess, uh. I don't know. Success means motivation, passion, determination. Going to Disneyland. Just kicking down fear and doing what I have to do to survive. I define success by the amount of likes I receive on Instagram. I guess how I would define it would be the smiles that I see on my wife and kids' face each and every day I come home. That lets me know uh, what I'm doing is worthwhile and to keep going. I would describe it in one word, sincerity. Achieve the goals that you set for yourself. I have thought about going back to school, even online, because I don't think I could sit in a classroom with um, youngsters. They probably call me grandma. <laughs> Actually had a child at 22. I never really had time to go back to school, but he turned five and I went back and I got my high school diploma at 27. One of the goals I set for myself many years ago was to have a happy family. And I think I've been successful in that. My first love is, you know, besides my wife, is music. I feel like I just have a lot to say to the world. I want to be the number one Instagrammer in the world. Waking up with the complete biggest smile on your face, knowing that you're going to make it. I would tell people to um, follow their gut. It's never too late to do anything. Don't sweat the small stuff. To embrace others for who they are. I think we all deep down know what we want to do in this world. And don't be afraid to be you. Good morning, Hope Ames. Again, my name is Danny, and I'm just really glad that we get to worship together. I know we say it a lot. You know, you already heard that we say it a lot, but let me say it again. We believe it's no accident that you're here. We've been praying for you, and so we're so glad that we get to worship together at the beginning of this really exciting week. Uh, hello, college students. We're so glad that you're back. Let's give God praise for them, huh? Isn't that cool? Really excited. They're not the only ones starting a new thing this week. We've got teachers and students going back to school and admin and for some reason, I always feel like this time of year feels a little bit more like New Year's than January 1st. There's just a sense of freshness in the air, and I'm excited to hop into that season with you all. But before we do, let's go ahead and conclude this series called Faith at Work and School. As we finish up the series, I've got a question for you. How do you find, define success? What is success? You heard a lot of answers in that video, and those are kind of the ideal answers that we all provide. Here's what the research says how people define success. 11% of people say that success does not require money. Excuse me, I wrote that down wrong. Only 11% of people say that success requires money. And I'm going to humble myself like the, like the Bible reading told me to today. I'm not going to make excuses. That's my fault. 11% of people say that success requires money. Can we just get that in our head so you don't pay attention to what I wrote there? <laughs> Ideally speaking, that's what we would all say. 11% of us say that real success requires money, but 89% of us say, you know, it doesn't really matter about money. We chase our dreams. It's not about the superficial stuff, but I really appreciate the honesty of that guy in that video who said, I think success in life is Instagram likes. Because I also found this statistic. The first one was from Pew Research uh, Forum. The second one was from Wealth Research Group. And it said that 98% of people I read this study over and over and over again to make sure I was reading that right. 98% of people give up on their dreams. 98% of people give up on what they thought was going to make them successful. And the overwhelming, most common answer for why people give up on chasing success, on going for their dreams, has to do with money. Isn't that contradictory? 
11% of people say that my dreams don't depend on money, but 98% of people say, yes, it does. <laughs> what is real success? If we went back to Pew Research, it also said that people would say that success equates to satisfaction. Now, you might be surprised. Jesus says something similar to satisfaction and success because Jesus had a purpose. Jesus had a mission. And what would Jesus consider success for himself? In John chapter 10, it says this, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. But my purpose, what would be successful for me, would be to deliver you a rich and satisfying life. So according to Jesus, success also equals satisfaction, but Jesus' definition of satisfaction, of contentment, might not equal that of the world's. Let's go ahead, and go ahead and hop into the book of James. This is where we got our Bible reading from today. This is in James chapter 1. It says, Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast also, but because God has humbled them. God's word is telling us, whether you have a lot or you have a little. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 4 as well. Whether you have a lot or you have a little, you could be satisfied. You could be content. Whether you go into a job that delivers you lots of money, whether you have a social media profile that gives you lots of status, whether you have a friend group that gives you tons of power, you could have a lot or you could have a little, and you could be satisfied. Those who are poor in all those different kinds of things could say, I boast because God honors me. Where the world dishonors me, God honors me. And I take satisfaction and contentment knowing that the most esteemed being in the history of the universe esteems me. Now, at the same time, those who are rich in those places, but still believe the word of God, they could say, I know that these things don't make me who I am. I have freedom in knowing that I don't have to keep this up. I could lose it, but still have my satisfaction. I am humble enough to know that I am not the one who can make myself. I brought this up in the sermon last week, so I hope that you recognize this next slide. What I do does not equal who I am. Would you say that with me? What I do, what I do. is not... Who I, am. who I am. Hopefully you recognize that from last week. But when we start to realize who we are and who God says we are, whether we have the lot or we have the little, that we are children of God, that will lead what we do. What I do is not who I am. Whether I do a lot, whether I do a little. Whether I have a lot, whether I have a little. That's not who I am. Who I am is already set. Who I am is already complete. And that will lead what I do. One of the stories in my life that makes me think about this is I had a friend in high school, his name was Gabe. Gabe was really tall. Gabe was also really good at basketball. Gabe was about six foot nine. He eventually went over and played professional basketball overseas in Europe. Gabe was so good at basketball, he could jump so high, he was so tall that in one game, he actually jumped up and he hit his head on the rim so hard that he started to bleed and he had to go and get stitches and leave the game. I was talking to him later on and we were just kind of joking. I was like, oh my goodness, how did you do that? And he goes, uh, I guess I forgot that I was six foot nine. It's kind of choking. Like, it's just kind of funny, right? Like, it's, it, he's acting like he's five foot nine, but he's still six foot nine. It's true. What we do is not who we are. But if Gabe knows that he's six foot nine and he uses that to his advantage and also his athletic ability, he becomes this great basketball player. So many of us are acting like a person that we are not. And so many of us are wondering, why do I not feel like the person I'm acting like? Why do I still feel like an imposter? It's because what you do is not who you are. But when we realize who we are, it will absolutely lead what we do. So hear me loud and clear on this. Whatever season you are going into in your life, you are a child of God. 
You are a child of God. You don't have to do stuff to become a child of God. You are a child of God. Now let that lead the things that you do in your life. Let's hop back into James as it really starts to expand and explore this. For if you listen to the word, if you listen to the word and don't obey it, if you listen to God's word, what God is telling you about yourself, about this world, and don't obey it, it is like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see your face and you forget what you look like. Now for us, that's kind of hard to relate to because we have mirrors everywhere. You go into a gym. You might not like where you're at right now, but you're constantly reminded of that, aren't you? Because there's mirrors everywhere. You go into a store. They want you to think, how might I look in this? So they have mirrors everywhere. We have a great idea of physically what we look like. Back in those days, they did not. Mirrors were a very prized possession. Not everybody had a mirror. And so it was common for someone to look in a mirror, see what they look like, but then walk away and forget. And so they might act differently than what they saw in the mirror. One of the most common object lessons that we see in sermons is a mirror, and I'm going to bring that out today. I have a question for you. Other than the glare that's shining at our baptism family, what do you see when you look in the mirror? What do you see? A lot of times, it's very easy to talk about the things we want other people to see, right? So if somebody asks you, what's success in life? We go with the ideal answer. Oh, you know, when I look at myself in the mirror, I see potential. <laughs> what that's code for is, when I look in the mirror, I don't like what I have now. When I look in the mirror, I see what I'm missing. When I look in the mirror, I see absences. And my question is, when does that start? Because do you ever see a four-year-old look in the mirror? They're blown away. It's amazing. It's the greatest thing they've ever seen. Can you believe I have hair and muscles and I can move my feet? But then somewhere along the line, we don't look in mirrors to see what we like. We look in mirrors to see what we don't like. We go to mirrors to make sure that the thing we tried to fix earlier is still fixed. When did that change? So who do you see when you look in the mirror? God tells you who you can see. You can see a child of God. You can see God's beloved person. You can see the reason why God came into this world. Lived, died, rose from the dead, ascended, sits on the right hand of the Father. You can see that. Or we can walk away and very quickly start to think about the things that we're not. And this is the root of all sorts of dysfunction in this world. Because when we look in the mirrors, we, think of, we, th we see the things we don't have. We just have this totally misguided idea. What's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Well, you want what you don't have. So you scheme and kill to get it. I look in the mirror and rather seeing what's really there, I see what's not there. And I see somebody else with that thing that I have. And rather than being happy for them, rather than having joy for them, rather than being excited about their success and their satisfaction, living out God's purpose for them, I, I instead look like Elmo in this picture. <laughs> who, when you see that, who are you? And somebody's a child very cutely said, Elmo, yes. A lot of times I feel like Elmo, who's devastated because my friend is taking a picture with Woody. And I get frustrated, and I get angry, and I don't want to put a picture in any child's head about Elmo being evil, but in that moment, Elmo feels very evil, right? <laughs> Elmo doesn't like Woody, you know, whatever the, the, the voice is. God bless. <laughs> that, 
That just wasn't in the script for today. <laughs> okay, that's on a silly level, but on a much deeper level. Who are the people that you're looking at and you so desperately want what they have because it's what you don't have? You walk away from the mirror and you remember what was absent rather than what God gave you and what God delights in and what God is pleasing in. There was a brilliant, and I mean brilliant writer named Cynthia Heimel. She died in 2018. Um, in uh, the 1990s, she was one of the most respected and revered journalists, but a unique journalist. would do the color stories, right? Stories about life, the stories about people. One of her assignments as a journalist was to follow celebrities and to figure out what made them tick and where they were at today. One of her stories specifically looked at what was it like for a celebrity to become famous and what happened to them after that. You see part of the quote on the screen there, but let me read you the extended quote. She said, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Those people who seem to have everything that I want. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to go away. She used a different word, but I'm not going to say that here. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that something that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, well, it happened. And they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And then she wrote something that stands out to me and jumps off the page. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, God grants your deepest wish. Now, I don't believe that about God, and I don't know if Cynthia Heimel actually believes that about God, but if God were evil, don't you think God would give us everything that we say we want right on the surface? I mean, my goodness, if parents were evil, they would give their children what they want right on the surface. When I was five years old, I wanted a Tyrannosaurus Rex. It would be evil. It would be wrong. It just so happens that the things that we always thought was going to satisfy our life won't do it. I know that it's really easy for people to look at celebrities or people with money or people with power or people with fame or people with status, whatever that might be, whether you want to be famous or just make a difference. You might look at those other people and say, well, you know, I'd at least like to try. Let me find out for myself. But we're only kidding ourselves if we think we'll get to that same place and find a different conclusion. We won't. Because that's not the thing that our soul really wants, that our soul really needs. So in James, it tells us this. You heard this in our reading today. You don't have what you want. You've been seeking, but you don't have what you want because you're not asking God for it. You're asking something else for the thing that your soul really wants. You're asking a girlfriend. You're asking a boyfriend. You're asking a hobby. You're asking a job. You're asking something for what only God can give you. Contentment and satisfaction for your soul. You're not going to find it anywhere else. But then even when you do ask, you get it wrong because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. Isn't it so interesting? We go to God and we ask for the job. We go to God and we ask for the grade. We go to job, we go to God and we ask for the scholarship. We go to God and we ask for the internship. We go to God and we ask for the stuff, and then we go to the stuff and ask for the satisfaction and contentment. Who's your God? God was just the means to the stuff. And then the stuff became our God, and the stuff is the lousy God. Let us stop going to God and asking for stuff, and instead let us go to God and receive and expect that he will give us life. 
There is nothing wrong with asking God for something, but do not ask God for that thing expecting that that thing is going to give you the happiness. Instead, we remember what James wrote in James chapter 1. You could have a lot or you could have a little. The poor are honored by God and the rich are humbled by God. Both get to have God. When we get this wrong, it's not just something silly like Elmo looking at Woody. It is corrupting our hearts. It's corrupting our souls. And it is polluting the most important relationship any one of us has. Sometimes you wonder, why aren't the other relationships in my life going okay? I wonder if it's because we're not prioritizing the most important relationship in our life. Prioritize your relationship with God first and perhaps your relationship with people and then relationship with the things in your life will follow suit. It says this also in the book of James. Adulterers. You adulterers. Ouch. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? James says that right after he says the thing about why are you fighting with people so much? And that seems odd. Fighting with people so much, wouldn't that mean that I'm an enemy of the world, but a friend of God? Sometimes as Christians we think, if I'm going to be a friend of God, I've got to stand up and be defiant to people. No, a friend of God is a friend of God's children. Someone who loves God loves God's people. But someone who follows the ways of this world believes that I have to get stuff for myself. This is a scarce world, and I better hold on to it. So a friend of God loves God's people. A friend of God serves and honors the people of this world. But a friend of the ways of this world fights and argues and believes that the things of this world are the only things that will bring us satisfaction and happiness. But that's just not true. James really pushes for this. I mean, really tries to you know, urge our souls to look back, to repent. And to repent literally means to just rethink your thinking. Sometimes we think, oh, I'll repent. If I'm going to repent, I'm going to have to change everything about my life on the spot. So therefore, I can't repent because I can't do that. Repenting is, very, is way easier than that. Repenting literally means to rethink your thinking. Do you know what the first step of repentance is? There are a lot of times where as a pastor, someone will come to me, I can't believe I did this again. Oh, I'm such a sinner. God would never love me. I'm never going to be worthy of his grace. Stop with that lie. It's not true. So sometimes I'll follow up with a question. Do you want to do it again? No. You've repented. But what if I do it again? We're not talking about what you're going to do again. We're talking about what do you want to do again. We're talking about what you're thinking. We're talking about where your heart is. Let us repent. Let us rethink our thinking. We're so focused on the end of stuff. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do in the future? Rather than being present here in the moment with God and saying, God, what is my heart longing for right now? My heart's not longing for the things that have left me empty. Maybe one day I'll get confused and fall into that again. But Lord, every single time that happens, I dare to repent. I dare to rethink my thinking. I dare to come back to you so that the more I come back to you, the more I live with you, the more I live with you, the more I walk with you, and the more I, res the more I resist the friendship with the ways of the world. And instead, I embrace your friendship. And I embrace your people. God is passionate about you having this. God is passionate about you receiving that. God is passionate about you knowing that kind of grace. It says, let's not talk about the things that you're going to do. Let's talk about where your heart, where your soul is at today. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning, James says in chapter 4, verse 8? They say that God is passionate. God's passionate about you. God's passionate that the spirit that he has placed within us should be faithful to him. 
not faithful with the ways of this world, but faithful to him. And the beautiful thing about it is being faithful to God means being faithful to God's people. God wants us to be faithful in a way to him. The word that James used for people who aren't faithful to God is actually, like I said, it is adulterer. What a big accusation. I tell you what, I open the book of James and I'm like, I'm so excited to preach on this today. I get a call, all of hope, an adulterer. Isn't that great? I don't take joy in that. I don't like that God's word is telling me I'm an adulterer. I don't like that at all. We could look at that and see about the things that we've done wrong to, be, to earn that label. Or we could look at that term and see the heartbreak of God. It's not about me and what I'm doing. It's about how much God loves me. How much God cares about me. How desperately and how passionately God wants to give me his grace. So much that he sees me in the way that a spouse would see their lover. In a way that a spouse would see the person that they esteem and value the most in this world. When people say, you know what? I just got to do things so that God loves me. We're missing the point. Sometimes people will say, you know what? You can't think that God's love would never leave you because then you'd never have reason to do right. And you're getting it wrong. We don't do the things that God wants us to do because we're afraid of losing his love. In the same way that if you're in a healthy marriage, if you're in a healthy friendship, if you're in a healthy relationship, if you have a healthy family, you're not doing stuff because you're afraid of what you might lose. You're doing stuff because there's something exciting about exciting the person. There's something exciting about pleasing that person. And I'm not talking about the big, grand, enormous things. I bought you a car! I'm talking about doing the dishes. Because you know that your wife is going to come downstairs, that your husband's going to walk into the room, that your brother or sister will show up, that your mom or father will walk into the space and be like, you did that for me? When we really love someone, it's not so much about, oh my goodness, what are all these incredible giant things I could pile on top of each other and just blow them away? I think with God, it's something as simple as, I'm doing the dishes not because you can't do it. I'm doing the dishes not because you're incapable. I'm doing the dishes because it pleases you. Now let me get really clear about what it means, right? The Bible has all sorts of commandments for us, and sometimes we think, oh, rules, rules, I hate rules. But what would life be without rules in the same way? What would any game be like without rules? The other night, my wife and I were playing a game, Dominoes, with our friends, and I had never played Dominoes before. They made it clear to me that I obviously had no idea how to play dominoes before because I had this, I didn't understand that apparently the digits had to match up with each other, something like that. Could you imagine if we let it go that way the entire game? You know, let's all play by the rules, but Danny, you just put whatever thing you want to put down. It would cause chaos. They wouldn't welcome me back into their home. You cheater. Rules are good for us because they keep us in line. Now, in a much more serious way, the rules that God's given us for life is not simply to prohibit us from the bad things. It's to save us and to keep, or to, to prohibit us from the good things that our soul really wants. It's to save us from the bad things that would pollute our souls and hurt our souls. Because God cares about us. God loves us. And so when God says, don't lie, God's not saying, don't lie because I don't want you to get away with stuff. God's saying, don't lie because he loves truth. Truth excites God. Truth sets us free. Truth makes God excited and joyful. And so truth ought to make us excited and joyful. We have that kind of passion put in us. To live lives that are faithful to God. Because God sees us as a spouse. That kind of love. That kind of depth. We all seek that. We all desire that. Think about the songs that talk about love, right? 
they talk in such hyperbole, things that are impossible. I do a lot of weddings, and uh, you hear a lot of songs at weddings, and they're all great, and you should never like hold back on doing a certain song. But there's this one song that became very, very popular for a few years. Maybe you had it in your, in your wedding, and, and it's the lyrics that say, I've loved you for a thousand years, I'll love you for a thousand more. And when I really think about that, I have to think, no, you haven't. <laughs> like, I feel terrible saying that, but isn't it true? Like, you haven't loved anyone for a thousand years, you haven't lived for a thousand years. But why do we say it? Because love naturally strikes up this passion and feeling inside of us to hope that someone might. It's getting in touch with the desires of our soul that someone would love us for a thousand years and a thousand more. God is the one who can do it. I brought this up in the sermon last week too. This is in Ephesians chapter 1. Even before he made the world, God loved us. God is the only one who can actually say before the stars were created, before the heavens and the earth, I loved you. And I'll love you when all the stars are gone, when the mountains have moved, when the hills have crumbled. At the end of the universe, there will still be God, and there will still be you. That's what your soul wants, isn't it? So we don't have to be proud. We don't have to elevate ourselves In our reading for today in James chapter 4, it says, stop with that. God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. He gives freely. The gift that never ends. The satisfaction that we all desperately want, desire, and need. God gives us that. God truly gives us his success. I want to tell you this. Whatever season you're heading into this week, whatever school year, job, vacation, whatever it might be. God's grace goes with you. It goes before you, it goes behind you, it goes in it with you. Stay humble and receive that. When we're proud, we don't receive grace, do we? Because we don't think we need it. In order to receive a gift, we have to be humble enough to say, I need that in my life, or at the very least, I want it. I have a very big problem in my life. I cannot keep track of where I leave my keys. Can anybody else relate to that? I've told stories and sermons about how I have lost my keys and it lasts forever and ever and I feel like I'm never going to see them again. My family has picked up on this trait and for Christmas one year, my mom got me a key finder. Very recently, I was at my parents' house and I said to my mom, I can't find my keys. And she said, I guess you didn't receive my gift. (laughs) Oh, I don't need that. Yes, I do. Listen, no matter how elevated you are, no matter how much power, money, wealth, status, whatever it is that you've acquired, we all need this grace. And this grace is the only thing that will give us true success and satisfaction in our lives. This is what God's success looks like in our life. God's success. God's success means that God's already won. See, Jesus said in John chapter 10, I've come to give you a rich and satisfying life. Jesus is identified in John chapter 1 as the Word of God. And the Word of God is true. In the same way that when God said, let there be light, there was light. God's Word was true. Jesus is the actual active Word of God, living and breathing in this world. And so when Jesus says, my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life, it's happened. Jesus has already done the work. Jesus has already won. And so when we think about getting success with God, we don't have to go to a place to get it. God's brought it to us. So what does God's success look like in our lives? The first thing I think that we need to understand 
is you get to stomp on the devil with God's success. I think that it's important in Christianity and in our faith to talk more about what we're walking with, who we're walking with rather than what we're running from. I think that's what healthy Christians do. I think we're talking more about the grace that we walk with rather than the devil that we run from. Because the devil does not actually have power on us. So often Christians give the devil way more credit than he deserves. The devil is not omnipresent. The devil is not omniscient. The devil does not have the power of God. The devil probably doesn't know your name. And I know that's humbling for some of us to hear. Because the devil plays favorites. The devil isn't fair. But the devil wants you to think that he's not a coward. The devil wants to think that you have to succumb to the evil temptations of this world. The devil wants to think that you can't resist logging onto the computer and going to that one website. The devil wants you to think that you have to make that deal at work. The devil wants you to think you have to flirt with that coworker. The devil wants you to think that you have to get frustrated with your kids. The devil wants you to think that you have to be angry. The devil wants you to think that you have to be competitive. The devil wants you to think all sorts of things, but he is a coward. And when you tell the devil, in the name of Jesus, I already have victory, he runs away. It says this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't you know the devil's a coward? A coward. When the devil sees you proclaiming the word of God and claiming that identity that God says you have, you don't have to earn, the devil runs because the devil is terrified of our God. The devil has nothing on you. You have God's success and satisfaction already in your life. Stomp on the devil with it. He deserves none of your attention. Your resistance makes him flee. When the devil tried to tempt Jesus, Jesus simply responded with scripture. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And the devil tempted with him with all sorts of things that should have made Jesus say, yeah, I think I need that. And Jesus simply responded with the already written word of God. To that point, he didn't create anything new. He just said, this is the word of God, you're lying, go away, coward. And by the end of the passage in Matthew chapter 4, it says, the devil fleed him, and the angel of the Lord came to comfort him. As the devil flees, we experience the comfort of God, knowing that we have the right and the authority to stomp on the devil. Resist him, and he will flee, because he's a coward, Success in life also means getting close with God. We get to get close with God. In James chapter 4, it says, Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Don't you love that? Find one place in the Bible where someone approaches Jesus, he says, Forget you. Was there even one time when anyone, no matter how broken they were, Jesus said, I don't have time for you? I've said this before. Half of Jesus' miracles were interruptions. Someone came up to him and interrupted him. And he always had time for them. Come close to him, and he will come close to you. At Hope, we want to make opportunities for you on this. Here are just a few pictures of some of the opportunities we have. We've got a prayer walk tonight. Prayer is an incredible tool that God gives us to get close with God. Come experience that prayer walk tonight as we pray over the students and over the teachers. We've got worship every single week. Please do not just make this a monthly thing that you come to. Please do not make this a thing that you come to when you have time. Prioritize it. If you're too busy for God, you are too busy if things get in the way with worshiping in the community of God, you're too busy. When you're on vacation, bless another church family. Bless that congregation. Show up and worship with them. 
We've got opportunities for kids and adults and anything in between. Kairos at the Campanilas this week, and I'm so excited that our college students are coming back. We get to kick off a brand new school year with them and let them know that they are children of God, beloved. They don't have to work for the success. God's success has come to them, and they get to live with that in their lives. I oftentimes see it with our kids. We saw it this summer at Vacation Bible School. Just how thrilled and excited they were. The greatest gift that you can give your kids, and I know I'm not a parent, but I do know this much about what we can give kids. The greatest gift you can give your kids is a gift that will never go away. And that is the gift of God's grace. That is the gift of God's love. And God has entrusted you as their parent to give it to them. There's a parent in our church, and also a grandparent in our church, who gives God's grace. And I want to show you a picture of him. This is my friend Steve. Uh, Steve was helping out at Vacation Bible School this summer. And Steve, uh, if there was a picture that embodies Steve as a person, it's that. Jumping for joy. Steve is a dignified man. He has his PhD. He's been a professor. He just retired from Iowa State. He's had a very successful life, if you will. But I tell you what, at Vacation Bible School this summer, he's not getting paid to be there. He's showing up. He's just seeing God's love pour through these kids. I don't think I've ever seen anyone so alive in my life. I mean, seriously, you want to know who the people in this church are who are the most alive? It's the people who have dropped down what they believe needs to make them successful and said they embrace God's grace. God's gift. You want to jump for joy like Steve? Just get close with the God who's been trying to get close with you forever. The God who truly has loved you for a thousand years and in an eternity more. God's success in us also confesses and considers. This is kind of a taboo word in the Christian faith, confession. Because confession means that we didn't have it all together. But I want to lighten it for you. Not for the sake of just making it easier, but for the sake of us really understanding what it means. Confession, biblically speaking, means to give up the things that don't belong to us. The things that are weighing us down. The things that are hurting us. But the things that we can't drop because we always thought we had to carry them. Confess it. Let it go. James chapter 4, you heard this in the reading today. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. Be free of it. Rid yourself of it. It doesn't belong to you. But then consider. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. And we hear that, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm clean now. What, 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 what could possibly be sad about this? Well, don't you know that when you know that you had lost time with someone, you, you're sad? Keep in mind, this passage is going to end with, again, God lifting up the humble. It ends with joy. It ends with praise. It ends with glory. That's all good. But there is something sad about knowing, I could have had all that time with God. I could have had all that space. I met my wife in 2014. We didn't get married until 2020. There was a big time and space and years there where I kept on texting her. I kept on calling her. I kept on comparing every single person in the world to her. But we were so far in distance, we just thought, we can't make it work. But my goodness, once she saw how special I really was up close and personal, <laughs> she grieved. Um, no, uh, <laughs> I begged. <laughs> but your sorrow and grief does not stay there, and it can't. It turns into something beautiful. And we can know that when we take a look at who wrote this. At the beginning of chapter 1 in James, he simply says, this letter is from James. You know who James is? This isn't the disciple James. This is James, brother of Jesus. And so maybe if you read the book of James, you're like, wow, he's a little intense. Keep in mind, 
He's the younger brother of Jesus. You think about living in a shadow your whole life. This letter is from, from James. James did not always believe that Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, in John chapter 7, when Jesus is teaching, it says that Jesus' brothers, his family, they're outside and they're mocking him. The things that you're teaching, they're just so simple. They're just so basic. You're embarrassing us. You're taking away our status in the community. This is embarrassing. What are you doing? What kind of transformation took place in James's life? To go from that place to saying, Jesus, stop talking. This isn't the way to success. That's not how you do it. To becoming a person who would write one of the books in the Bible. To become a leader in the church. In Acts chapter 15, there's a scene where it shows James acting as the appointed leader of the church. James is someone who missed out on three years of Jesus' active ministry because he didn't want to believe him. That wasn't the way to success. I mean, come on. You know what it's like. The people who you share a bathroom with, you might not think they're super spectacular either. What happened in James's life? We don't know all the details of it, but we get a small little glimpse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is writing about all the people who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, proving, I am the Son of God. I am the resurrected King. Death cannot stop me. I am successful. Even when I die, I come back and live again, and I brought it to you. It says that Jesus showed up to the 12 disciples, and then Jesus showed up to over 500 of his followers, and then James. In the entire New Testament, there is one person who is in a room one-on-one with Jesus after his resurrection that we have a recording of. In a room. It's his brother James. Boy, to be a fly on the wall in that room. Oh, Jesus! You're back! That's great. Mom's got dinner. We should go get it. But I wonder if for real he saw, well, that's success. Jesus, you hold the keys to the one thing that inevitable death cannot take from me. It's your grace. It's your rich and satisfying life that you've come to deliver to all people. My goodness, when James would have read the New Testament eventually, when James would have heard the stories about the things that Jesus was teaching while he was outside mocking his brother, I wonder what he must have thought. Perhaps Jesus' most famous parable is in Luke chapter 15. He says it right after he's told two stories about how God sees lost people. First, he talks about a lost sheep and how a shepherd would leave 99 sheep to find the one. He says, my father is like that shepherd. Then he talks about a lost coin. A woman would turn over her entire house to find this one coin. God says, my father is like that woman. Then he tells a story about a man who had two sons. We won't go into all the details, but by the end of this story, the lost son who went out and wasted everything, who stomped on his father's reputation, on his father's inheritance that he had to offer him, who stomped on his entire family, he comes back. And the father's excited to receive him. He's waiting for him. He throws a big party. But then there's the older son. And he's angry and he's frustrated. 
after Jesus had just told two stories about how, okay, there's a shepherd that finds the sheep. There's a woman who finds the coin. Who was supposed to find the, the lost son? Everybody in that ancient Jewish culture would have known it was supposed to be the older brother. The older brother's job, the firstborn's job, was to keep the family together, to keep the family successful and satisfied in their community, to give them life to move on. That was the older brother's job. Everybody listening to Jesus sharing that story would have known. It was supposed to be the older brother. And James is the brother sitting outside, trampling on his family's reputation as his brother is in there telling people, this is the key to life. It's not a life where you run away. It's not a life where you try to chase the pleasures of your heart. It's a life where you chase the pleasures of God because he's given them to you to run with. Enjoy it. Live this life, child of God. You don't have to earn it. But here's James outside. Until one day, James and Jesus are in a room together. And James must have known, must have realized, you, Jesus, you are the true older brother. You are the real one that we've all been looking for. And I'm the younger brother, but you've brought me home. Maybe you feel like you've missed out on too much and you're sad and you're sorrowful about that. It is never too late to start walking with the success of God in your life. And I'm not talking about monetary success. I'm not talking about societal success. I'm not talking about status success. I'm not talking about likes on Instagram success. I'm talking about satisfaction. I'm talking about contentment. I'm talking about grace. I'm talking about the one thing in this life that death cannot take away from you. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that the true older brother has given you. Let's go ahead and live life with him. Let's go ahead and honor him with our lives. Let's go ahead and show this success to the rest of the world and let them know the inheritance is for them too. Let's go ahead and do the things that excite God, not because we're afraid that we're going to lose his love, but because we're excited about experiencing and living in his love. Come on, church. Where are you going this week? You're going to school? You're going to work? You're moving into a dorm? Where are you going to be? Go ahead, bring God's success, bring God's satisfaction, bring God's grace into those spaces. There will be a time in this new school year where you're angry, where you're frustrated, where you're sad. And maybe you're going to want to blame it on somebody. Maybe you're going to want to blame it on your kid's teacher. Maybe you're going to want to blame it on your kid. Maybe you're going to want to blame it on your boss. Or, rather than focusing on what someone might have taken from us, or how someone might have done us wrong, and thinking about what we don't have, we could remember the grace that no one can take. And we can share it. Church, you get to share it. You've been sharing it for five years. Five years ago, yesterday, was our first service as a campus of Lutheran Church of Hope in this room, and that blows my mind. Before then, there were just a small group of people that were meeting and watching the service online, and they got together and they painted this thing. And from far away, it's kind of like a beautiful piece of artwork, but up close, it's actually just very simple. It's kind of like hard, crusted over paint, and the closer you get, you're kind of like, okay, well, okay, let me step away, you know, again. And for those of you who are a part of it, thank you. It's beautiful. <laughs> but when I look at that, I see something incredible. And I'm not just talking about its physical beauty. I'm talking about the colors. And I'm talking about the center. See, it is at the cross where all people of all perspectives, of all backgrounds, of all places, of all dreams, will meet at the cross. 
We meet at Jesus. Jesus' gift, Jesus' success, Jesus' satisfaction, Jesus' contentment is for every single person. Go ahead. Share it. Meeting at the cross for five years, we're going to keep meeting at the cross, church. We're going to meet at the grace of God. May you receive his success, but know what it really is. Satisfaction. Contentment. His grace. Let us humble ourselves enough to receive it. Amen. Stand up and sing.